All right, well, it's good to be able to worship God today and uh, thankful for um, everybody that has helped us do that. I know that I could be wrong, but it seems like maybe it's changed the weather. I don't know what it is, but it seems to me like it's a good day. It feels like this would be a good day for a nap if it were me. Um, just, that's going to be me later on is what I'm saying. Um, and we're not even to, to noon yet. So, uh, But I hope that the things we can look at are going to be helpful and that we will stay alert and awake. Um, I know that talking about some things in Ezra might not be you know, the most motivating all the time, but I, I hope that the things that we're going to look at actually that we find them motivating, that we see the things that we can apply. Um, we're actually going to be in the book of Ezra, but we're not going to even get to Ezra yet because if you've read the book of Ezra, you might know that he actually doesn't even come into play until like chapter six or seven. Uh, he, halfway through the book, he's not even there. So um, we're, we're going to take a look at a few things. And I think that this is going to be part one of two uh, of lessons. And the reason for that is because our theme uh, is up here on the board and it's Jesus Christ, our foundation. Today's not a theme sermon, so I stopped short of actually making the theme sermon, even though it really could have been there. It was right there. And I just didn't want to take up one of the 12 lessons because I don't know if I could, if it'd be easy for all of us to think of 12 more lessons uh, on, on the theme or 11 more lessons on the theme. Um, we're actually going to start in 2 Kings 17. So if you want to mark Ezra or just know that we're, that's where we're going, we're going to start in 2 Kings 17. What I want to do is I want to set up a little bit of the stage of, of just captivity and exile. And I think 2 Kings 17 is a good place for that. And then what I want to do is I want to then go to Ezra and I want to take a look at what happens when it's time under Cyrus to, to go back, just as God has prophesied, and to start rebuilding. Now, they don't rebuild the temple under the rule of Cyrus, king of Persia, um, but they start. They go back and they start, and they build an altar and they lay the foundation, and there's some, some problems, some people that get in their way. There's always people that get in the way when, when you're trying to do what's right, and that happens here in the book of Ezra. And then eventually, though, they are able to build the temple. And I think there's some lessons and things we can apply uh, for ourselves. So let's just start in 2 Kings 17, and we're going to start in verse 6, though. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah, and on the, on, on the Haber, the river of Gozan, and the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. All right, so this is the beginning of the end. I mean, the beginning of the end actually happens sooner. It happens as soon as God says that this kingdom is not going to last forever. But this is where we see it actually coming to play, right? This is when it's coming to fruition. And we see why. It says in verse 7, it's because they sinned. And they sinned against the God who brought them out of Egypt, who brought them up against Pharaoh, and they were victorious. And it says that they had feared other gods and they walked in the customs of the nations that the Lord even drew, drove out of, of their land, right? So they come out of Egypt, they go into their land after they mess up a little bit. So they wander in the wilderness for quite a while. And finally, they get to go into the land of Canaan, the land of promise. But there's people there, right? So God actually drives them out. 
the people know that. They, it's not like they think that they were so mighty and great that they know that God drove those people out. But they still turned to the customs and the gods of the nations because they didn't actually drive them totally out. If they had driven them totally out, then the customs go with them. The gods go with them. But that doesn't happen. Um, luckily, it doesn't really seem like they carry over the practices from Egypt. That's a little con- I'm a little confused by that because I would think that just kind of when we know the history of Israel, they should have taken those things with them too because that's what the kind of people they are. But they actually kind of leave that in Egypt. Or maybe they leave that in the Red Sea. Maybe that's why they don't take that with them. But when they go into the promised land, they get established they're strong, but they're still weak because they actually aren't strong enough to, to totally forsake the gods and the customs of, of the people in, in the land. Let's go down to verse 13. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I command your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. All right, so God warned them, this is what you need to do. Don't do this. You need to do this. And they despised that, right? They, they, they hate that. It actually says that they go after false gods, and it seems like they become false themselves in verse 15. So they don't want to listen to the prophets. They don't want to listen to the message of God. They actually despise the fact that God has been saying this for a while. God, This is kind of a tough thing for me to understand. If God has been saying for so long, you need to do this, you need to repent, you need to put away these gods, you need to just be devoted to me. Uh, if I will be your God, you will be my people. Or maybe the other way around is, I will be your God and you will be my people. But still, if there's a kind of a contingency there. And he's not their God, though. Not fully. But they, they despise the effort by God and by the people that God sends to try to get them back on the right track. Let's go down to verse 19. Judah also did not keep the... If we thought it was just Israel, like the northern kingdom, it's not just the northern kingdom. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. So Israel did this, and they, they, they were 100% wrong. Judah knew that they were doing wrong. And what did Judah do? Well, they did like the people in their land did. They, they did like Israel did. They followed after the same pattern. And it says that then God rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers. I mean, this has got to be just devastating, though. Once this actually happens, it's, it's devastating. Not just because there is devastation in the land, but because everything that you thought was true seems like it's all been ripped out from underneath you. But was it really ripped out from underneath them? No, it had been prophesied for so long. And even from the very beginning, God made it clear that you need to do this and I will do this for you. And God has been faithful. He will continue to be faithful, but they just do what they want to do and they do what the people around them do. I think sometimes this is how we can be. We can be the type of people where something is warned, it's warned or warned, and maybe we don't see the application of that or we don't see how 
what we do is connected to that thing. And all of a sudden here comes the punishment. And it's like, well, if I had known this was going to happen, I never would have done that. And then it's how it was when I was a kid. It's like, well, if I had known this was going to happen, uh, I would never would have like forgotten to take the trash out or I never would have, you know, rolled my eyes at you, mom, or I never would have, you know, done this or that. I mean, whatever it was that I did, I, I don't think I did terrible things, but whatever little thing, minor thing I did that was against my parents' rules, right? That was probably pretty major, actually. But, but in my eyes, it was minor. Whatever little thing that was, it's like, well, I, if I had known the punishment, why, I would have never – well, I knew the punishment. It, it just – when we're in the moment and when it's what we want to do, we don't regard our thing or the thing we're doing as being that bad, Right? I, th- I think that there's a chance that's what happens with Israel. Let's go down to verse 27. Verse 27. Then the king of Assyria commanded, send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there and let them go. By the way, this, so Israel's been taken away, okay? Assyria came and took Israel away. Um, but he's told that there's problems in the land because there, there's still some people there, right? But then it says that like lions are devouring the people, in the previous verses. So then verse 27, he says, send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities in which they had lived. The men of Babylon made Succoth Benoth, the men of Kuth made Nergal. The men of Hamath made Ashima. The, and the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak. And the Seraphites burned their children in the fire to Adrimelech and, and Anamelech, the gods of Sepharim. They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared the Lord, but also served other gods, excuse me, served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. I had already read those names and I thought I knew them. And then when you get in the the moment, sometimes you just forget. So, So the king of Assyria sees the problems going on in the land after he's taken almost all the people out of it and, and, and they've kind of scattered and everything like that. And he's like, oh, well, I know what, what we need to do. The land was doing good before. Let's just send one of the priests back over there because obviously like whoever their God is, he's got, he's got that territory. So things will go well in that land as long as they know their God and they do the things that they need to do to their God. But they don't do that. Every nation still makes gods of its own. And so they still follow their own gods. But it says that they still serve God. Like Jehovah God somehow, which is we're going to get into in a little bit. How can they fear the Lord but still serve their own gods? That doesn't seem to make sense. And what we're, I think what we're going to see is that that's not how it's supposed to work. Now let's go down to verse 40 and 41. However, they would not listen, but they did according to their former manner. So these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise, and their children's children, as their fathers did. So they do to this day. So this was years before the this was years before Ezra comes on, on the scene. This is years before Cyrus comes up. And what we see is that in the land of Israel, in modern day Palestine, you have people that are there. 
And you have some of them, there's just a few that are left over from the nation, I guess. But you really just have like people that are there that were already there that, that weren't part of the nation of Israel, so they weren't taken away. And we see that they actually intermarried, their customs intertwined, they served Jehovah, but they also served their own gods. That's what we call Samaritans. Uh, in the days of Jesus, if you want to know why the Jews despised Samaritans, because it started all the way back here in 2 Kings 17. And then as we get into the book of Ezra, what we're going to see is that these Samaritans, that they are going to cause some problems, again, for the children of Israel. So let's go ahead and go over to Ezra. So the temple that was built by Solomon has been destroyed, and it was destroyed around 586 by the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar. So we, uh, Second Kings describes the land and the state of the land. We, we already read that. Once the Persian Empire overtook the Babylonians, the people were eventually allowed to go back into Israel, at least some of them, just as God said it would happen. So let's go ahead and start in Ezra chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in it, in it writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house to, at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, all of his people, may, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. What we see here as we start is that God's plan is working, and now the people are actually able to go back and get to work. It's been a long time, though. I don't know exactly the, the, the date, because I don't think there's any way for people to know the exact date. And if they say they know the exact date, then um, they probably just want to be very confident in what they're saying. Uh, this probably happened somewhere around 538. So if you think about how long this has been, this has been about 50 years. So there's been about 50 years that they've been in exile, right? That's a long time. So think about, think about the people that were leaders in, among the children of Israel at the time that they went into captivity. It's been 50 years. Most of them are probably dead. But not all of them are. And we're going to see that that actually comes up in a little bit. But God's plan is at work. God promised that this would happen. And his word is being kept. And, if, and some places you might want to go to um, to, to kind of see that this is, that's exactly what is happening. Uh, he mentions even Jeremiah here in, in Ezra 1. Places like Jeremiah 24 or Jeremiah 29 uh, or even Isaiah 44. Those are all places that kind of prove and show that like this is what God said was going to happen and now it's happening. God commands Cyrus directly, though. And Cyrus understands that this is his work to do. But his work isn't to actually build it, or else he would send his people to go build it. He understands his work is to allow the people to go do their work. That's kind of good just to see that distinction, right? The people of Israel are supposed to build the temple. They're supposed to go rebuild the place of God. Cyrus, his work is to let them go do that and to give them the supplies that they need for that. So he's going to make sure that they have all they need uh, to build the temple and to get reestablished. 
this is kind of similar to when they left Egypt, if you think about it. Like, I mean, Pharaoh gave them a lot of things so that that way when they actually go and when they go into the land, they have the things they need to please God and to praise him. So I think that's interesting just to notice that this is kind of a repeated thing, that God makes sure that even worldly people supply the things that are needed to his own people to accomplish his will. So let's go over to chapter 3. Ezra chapter 2, I'm not saying there's not, uh, it wouldn't be valuable to read through that, but um, I think that it would be just a little bit of waste of time for this sermon specifically. It basically just has a list of all the people and the numbers of people that, that are there. So uh, we're going to go to Ezra chapter 3, and we're going to pick back up in verse 1. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Jazadak, with his fellow priest and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They see the, the, they see the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at the and all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So the altar of God is built. And what's the first thing they do? It's time to offer praises. It's time to offer sacrifices. We, We can worship God. We can actually do what we're supposed to do and fulfill the commandments of God. They come together as one, it says. You have godly leaders that are needed to actually get things started. And they did exactly what they needed to do. And it says that they feared, though. It says that they had, still had fear. And then it says that they actually get prepared for the next step. Because the next step is now the foundation needs to be laid. They can't do it right now, but they make sure that, that there are plans so that they can actually do that at some point. Let's skip on down to verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout, and when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. So they have to wait a little while to actually lay the foundation, to build the foundation. I think they had to, to wait about anywhere from two to five years to actually be able to do this. So let's say this happens in 535. So they, they get the command in 538 to, from Cyrus. They actually get to go. They build the altar. It seems like right when they get there, 
Let's just say that happens in 537. And then a couple years passed before they actually laid the foundation. One of the things that I notice is that rejoicing and praise follow each step of the process. Like they, as soon as they accomplish something, they're all about giving praise to God. And I think that's an important lesson for us that as we consider our lives, every step of the way, every step where there's growth, every step where we feel like we're working for the Lord, we need to be praising and giving thanks to God. They consider God's steadfastness early on and they continue to do that. And we're going to see that in a little bit. But it says that some people weep while others are shouting with joy. Why were they weeping? Well, if you back up to actually verse 8, it says that they appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. Why 20 years old? Here's just what I think. The people that were to supervise the work were people that had never seen the former temple. They never saw the altar. They never saw any of that stuff, right? And I think that was actually important because was this going to match the former glory of the temple? It wasn't. And if you talk to older people, does anything now match the former glory of anything back when they, back when it was in, it was great in their day? Like, especially if like they helped build it, right? Like that's the best it's ever going to be. You could actually make it be more efficient. You can make it look a little bit better. It can be more streamlined, whatever it is. And it's just like, What's going on with these new contraptions today? This doesn't compare. I, my, my granddad doesn't complain about everything like that, but I, I do enjoy sometimes getting him going on those things just because it's just kind of fun to, to sit back and to have those conversations with them. But they probably have some legitimate reasons for weeping. Number one, it's been a long time since they've actually <laughs> seen the temple. It's been a long time since they've been able to worship God in this way. And it's also, this isn't going to compare. It's not going to compare to what was built in what we think was Solomon's day. And I think that's why they made the younger men the supervisors. Because what they need to focus on is, what are God's requirements? Not what was the former glory. Like, what does God want? What are his requirements? True glory is giving God what, exactly what he desires. Not what you remember it used to be. And that maybe is a lesson for us. All right, let's go on and continue reading in Ezra chapter 4. So they lay the foundation. Now, when the adversaries of Judah, keep in mind that he says right off the bat, these are adversaries. Now look at what they're actually going to say. When the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esaradan, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers, houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. You know, Israel always messed up by getting involved with other nations and other people, but they don't do it this time. And I think it's because they understand from the very beginning, they're adversaries. These people aren't with us. They're not, they're not like us. They're not worshiping God like us. They have no part in this. And that was a good thing. If you see how it plays out, it actually seems like maybe they made a mistake. Maybe they should have let them 
work with them. Because what they do is they go and complain, and they go to the king of Persia at the time, and he sends an order and edict where it has, they have to stop working for a while and everything. So maybe this was a mistake. I don't think it was. I, I think this is exactly what they were supposed to do. They were not supposed to have any part of these people. And if you notice what, the, what these people, these Samaritans say, they say, let us build with you because we worship your God as you do. Well, what do we read back in 2 Kings 17? They did fear God and they did worship him, but they worshiped all the other gods too. They worshiped each, each God that anyone had. They had individual gods and they said, this is the God for me, so this is my God. And then someone hears about that maybe and they say, well, tell me about that God. I'll, I'll worship that God too. That sounds great. Let's worship all the gods that we can. Let's cover all of our bases. That's what we're, that's what we're gonna do. Is that how God wants to be honored? Is that, is that, does God just find a place amongst other gods? No. The God of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of David, he doesn't, he doesn't deserve that. He doesn't want that, and he won't allow that. He won't stand for that. Another thing just to think about maybe is when they say we've been sacrificing to him ever since, what have they been sacrificing on? The temple's gone. The altar's gone. So whatever they've been doing is false worship. Whatever they've been doing has been unworthy and not been pleasing to God. So maybe here's some applications for us just from this one thing. You know, it's hard when you're working around other people and they're doing the same thing. It's hard, it's hard to keep working. Um, it's hard not to want to get involved in the work they're doing too. And maybe that's a lesson for us is that, well, they're doing this thing, I'm doing this thing. Their thing seems a little bit easier than, than what I'm doing. Maybe an example of that is that you feel a certain restraint at work, that you can't be involved in certain things. Like, you're not going to conduct yourself a certain way. And you see someone else and the, their work and what they're doing, that's, you can see the difference. It's very different. But it really seems to be working. And, like, there seems to be blessing there, almost. It's hard. It's hard to be okay continuing to worship God and to conduct yourself the way you know you need to. It's even harder when your work looks just like theirs sometimes. Because there's this idea of, well, aren't we together in this? Like, that's exactly what's happening here. Well, they are worshiping Jehovah. They do regard him as, as God. Why, why don't we just get them to help us in this building? Maybe, maybe that comes into play when we think about um, our close-knit friends. Maybe that comes into play when we think about people that we're in relationships with. Maybe that comes into play with our marriages. Maybe it just comes into play at, at the workplace. I don't know. But sometimes we get confused a little bit. We think, well, they're doing something, and it seems like they, they're doing things um, for God. So we just, let's just work together in this. And I think, it, just to say it plainly, if they don't regard God as the only God, like the top priority, then their work has nothing to do with your work. And that doesn't mean you can't have anything to do with them. But if you're going to think about doing something for the Lord, they have no part in that. So sometimes that means you're going to be alone in that. And that will be even more difficult. God's people are to be as one. We read that in chapter 3, that they were one, it seems like that, as one man in Jerusalem. But these people are not part of that. So as we are one as a body, as we are one in Christ, those that are not in Christ, they have nothing to do with that work. That doesn't mean they're terrible people. 
That doesn't mean they don't know anything about God. That just means that they don't have anything to do with the work of God. And really, I think that this idea is just bringing out the idea of sanctification, which is nothing new. Sanctification isn't new just in Christ. It was always God's design for his people. You go back to Exodus 19 and Exodus 29 and other places, and Deuteronomy even. It's very clear. Sanctification, God's people being set apart, uh, that's how God wanted it. So this, this kind of brings up another question that I do have. Like, weren't the Samaritans trying to do right? Shouldn't we regard that as, that, that's good. Like, they were trying to do right. Well, they had been worshiping, but the altar wasn't built yet, so that's not acceptable worship. There's the same people from 2 Kings 17 that feared God but served carved images. They pass this on to later generations like we read from 2 Kings 17. They did what was good for each individual, and now they're wanting to join together. But that's not how God's people are supposed to operate. And I think that will be a, a really rude awakening for us sometimes. Like this might be easier for them because it's not like they're related to these people necessarily. They're, they're coming, they come back into the land. These people are already there and they're just trying to do their job. So this might be a little easier for them to be like, no, you have nothing to do with the work that we have. But what about people that are currently in our lives? Could there be people in our lives where we, we just think well, we're, we're about the same thing? Like we have the same goals, we have the same desire, and we just want to please God. Well, do those people regard God, but also kind of regard themselves as God? Uh, do those people, for those people, is work their idol, their God? Is I mean, there could be a lot of other things. If so, then they're they're not really with with us. They're not really with you in this work. So if they want to join together in what you're doing and they want to say, hey, let's, let's be together in this, we'll accomplish this together, then at some point you just have to realize that your work is different than their work because you regard God differently than they do. And when we go on down and we read in verse, starting in verse 11, um, well, we don't have to start in verse 11, but if you, we'll go back and uh, read a few verses in chapter 4 in just a second. But let's go and skip on down to verse 11. This is a copy of the letter that they sent to Artaxerxes the king. Your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now, be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are building, they are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. This is the thing that they wanted to help build, by the way. Like, we regard God too. We want to help you build that. Now it's a rebellious and wicked place. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king. In order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, you will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from the old. From old, That was why the city was laid waste. We make it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. So they just wanted to benefit from the work. They didn't actually want to worship God. They didn't want to regard God as being Jehovah. 
Why would they want any part of this rebellious and wicked city? That's what they wanted to help build, right? Sometimes people do good because of the pleasure and not to please God. They do, because they do good because of the pleasure they feel and not to please the one true God. When some people feel excluded, they count good work as destructive and bad as well. And maybe we see that in our nation. Maybe we hear that in other parts of the world. That there's good things being done and there's a people that say, that's wicked, that's terrible, that's destructive. Watch out for that. That's going to harm everyone else if you let this happen. When in actuality, on some level, maybe they just kind of want to be part of it. But they know that they're excluded. Well, anytime you're excluded from something you really want to be a part of, you usually wind up turning and like, you know, being very vicious towards that. So that's what happens here. Let's go back and, and read verse 4 through 6 real quick of chapter 4. This is before they send this, um, this letter to Artaxerxes. This is before the king orders the work to stop. Beginning verse 4, he says, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Hazarus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. They waited until the time was right to send this letter to the king. They did everything they could for several years to just disrupt them, to make life hard, to, to do whatever they could just to get them to stop. They bribe people to frustrate and stop their purpose. But it doesn't really work. It doesn't really seem like it works. I mean, it, they, they stop, but they, they, they really stop because maybe it's difficult for them to actually get the things they need to continue work. And really then, once you have the letter from the king and his decree, they do stop for a while. When the time was right, though, the people start building again. Because prophets rose up and they gave instructions directly from God. And they weren't going to be quietened. They weren't going to stop talking. They weren't going to tell the people the truth. Let's go over to chapter 5 of Ezra. Beginning in verse 1. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jazadak arose and began to rebuild the house of God that, it, that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shetharabozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish the structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. I could be wrong about the dates, but I think what winds up happening is that around 530, the people send this letter to Artaxerxes. So if you think about the timeline there, the children of Israel, they've been building for about, I guess, eight years, maybe five years being, you know, dedicated building. And then they actually have to stop. And then, but then they get to restart. So about 520, it seems like they get to restart and they get to keep on building. And in 516 or somewhere around there, they, they finish building. 
It was a glorious thing when they finished building in chapter 6. But what led them to actually be able to finish building? Well, I think chapter 5 answered that. The first thing was that it says that the eye of God was on them. The eye of God, God was with them. And God was with them in the fact that he was overseeing the work, but he was also with them in the fact that he sent a good support system. Like the prophets were there and other people were there. The prophets aren't people that actually build, but it says in verse 2 that the prophets were with them supporting them. That's needed. If you're going to continue working and you're going to continue working for the Lord, it's not just about the people that are in the trenches working. It's about everybody joining up and being one and supporting the work. So pressure wasn't going to be enough. So they, they get asked questions. Who gave you a decree? Who let you do this? And it doesn't even seem like they answer. They just, they don't stop. Before they stop, now they're not going to stop. I think it's because they have a good support system. They know God is on their side. And it was time. There was another king that was, that was in uh, the Persian Empire at this time. Uh, you have Darius that comes, that arises and everything. And, and whereas the, the people that were in the Samaritans, they say, hey, Artaxerxes or Hazarus, whichever one it is. Uh, that, that gets a little confusing, by the way, if you try to figure out which kings or which and everything. But they, they say, go check the records. These people are terrible. Don't let them build. Then eventually... What happens is they say, hey, Darius, go check the records. There was a decree from Cyrus. And he goes and checks that, and he allows them to finish building in chapter 6. So they finally, build, they finally finish building. And what do they do? Let's read in chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. These will be the last three verses that we read. Then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bozani, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And then the next thing they do is they get everything ready for sacrifice. They get everything ready for worship. They praise God. So maybe another lesson that we should learn from this is that Thanksgiving should follow every step of success. Every step of growth, there should be Thanksgiving giving to God. But what about when there's difficulty? What about when there's opposition? Doesn't change. Praise and thanksgiving need to be there. God intends for his house to be built fully and not just started. So he's going to make sure it happens. But it takes the people to decide that they're going to just rise up and do the thing that God wants them to do. Let's make some application for ourselves. Because we're, we're not about a building a temple necessarily like they were or anything. And this is where I'm stopping short of actually, I think, going to the theme. But here are just some application points for us today. God has work for his people to do, and, and there's work for every person to do. You might not feel like you are equipped or capable to do the thing that seems the most glamorous. But just like the prophets supported them in their building, even if they weren't the actual builders, everybody has a part. Everybody has a place. But it does take good leadership among people even when God is watching over us. So we need to have good leadership. We need people to rise up that aren't thinking about the former glory and you know what they think it should look like, but just what does God want to be done? What does God want to see done? 
among his people. We need to be one and we need to be unified like they were. There will be people that cause problems and there will be always efforts to delay the work of God. People can fear God, but that doesn't mean, to be the, that doesn't mean they need to be part of his work. Those that are wanting to work and see to the end for the right reasons, those are the ones that should be involved. And those are the ones that we should be unified with. It's not just that they understand that God is who he is, but they actually live that out in their lives. Even after delays and being stopped for several years, what's important is that we do the work that God has prepared for us to do. And when we work on God's building, we find more reasons to praise and glorify God. Thanksgiving becomes more natural for us the more we're involved in his work. And maybe one of the questions that we're not going to answer this lesson is, so what is the work? What is the building? I'll just refer us to places like 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Ephesians. And I'll refer us to just the whole book of Acts and just to see like, oh, that's, that's the work that God wants us to do. It, it is interesting that in Ephesians 2, it talks about how the foundation has been built, and it's, and it's Christ, right? But then in Ephesians 4, it talks about us, and it talks about Christians, and what we are to be doing, and it makes it pretty clear that there is work to be done. Because he, he says that he gave apostles and prophets and evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. If we want to know what we're supposed to be built up, like what is this thing supposed to look like? What are we supposed to look like? And what is this church supposed to look like? It's Christ. That's the pattern. And that is the glory that God wants to see us being built up into. So whether we're thinking about our own lives and getting to work or whether we're thinking about this church and getting to work or whatever it is, just understand that the, the blueprint is laid and the glory is there and it's all supposed to look like Christ. And we're supposed and we have our own gifts and we have our own abilities and we're supposed to help each other build for building up this body. So as you think about the work that God has given you to do, just consider that being focused on the work, being unified being focused on praising God and giving Him worship and giving Him thanks throughout the whole process is exactly what we see them do in the days of Haggai, Zechariah, and it's exactly what we see the apostles and other people do uh, as, they, as they continue to work on God's temple and His building, which was the church instead of an actual physical temple. I don't know if there's anybody here who needs prayers, but if you do, understand that that's kind of part of us working is to help you. And if you need prayers, let us know. We want to be there for you. We want to study with you. We want to encourage you. We want not only for this group to be built up, but every person to be built up into Christ. So if we can help in that building, let us know as we stand and as we sing the song that's been announced.